What would you like to share with listeners today? Other ways of responding to harm. Liberation. This sound shield that you could take with you to protest. Collaborative dialogue. Demystify the process. Liberation loops. Hi, my name is Carly Beck and you're listening to Liberation Loops, a series that is being created and produced from both my bedroom and the 3CR studios on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. This is a series that dives deep into people's practices to challenge the criminal legal system and through this series I hope to discover in what ways people are already addressing violence in our communities and in what ways people are learning to heal from harm. Today, I'm speaking with Lauren Caulfield about community-based responses to harm. Lauren works at the intersection of interpersonal and state-sanctioned gender violence and is involved in training, organising work and community-based interventions to violence. She also coordinates the Policing Family Violence Changing the Story project, which is a collaborative, integrated community legal and survivor support project that responds to harm and criminalisation of people through family violence policing. Welcome, Loz. Thanks for joining us here on 3CR. Thanks so much for having me. So what drew you to doing this work? Um, look, that's such a, such a big um, and large question, I guess. If I answered it personally, there's a whole lot of stuff around my own experiences um, of, of violence and responding to it in the lives of, of my loved ones and, and the ways that violence has occurred in communities that I've been a part of. And then when I think about the work that I've done as part of the family violence sector, this specific sort of nexus of work around policing family violence and, and that intersection with um, with interpersonal and state-sanctioned violence, that's emerged very specifically for me, I think, as I've seen the sort of, I guess what I'd call the carceral creep in, in anti-violence organising or in, in family violence responses uh, in this location in Victoria where I work. Um, and I'd say of that, you know, there's such a strong history and movement here, especially of Indigenous-led anti-violence and abolitionist organising. Um, and then in turn, the, the refuge movement, it, it's the refuge movement itself, which spawns so much of, of, of family violence work and family violence services, was always really fiercely grassroots and saw those links between gendered and state violence. But increasingly, there has been that sort of carceral creep or the pressure to kind of build relationships and, and defer things across to, to police, to prisons, to criminal legal systems in the name of safety. And I think we've seen that so strongly here through the Royal Commission into Family Violence, where a whole lot of the focus and emphasis was really on centering uh, and enshrining, and certainly trying to improve, but centering and enshrining police responses to family violence. And then if we look at that uh, in the nexus uh, with other sort of racially targeted policing and the ways that, that drives police expansion and also criminalisation, it means we're working in a really specific context here. And I think for that sort of wider focus for me, particularly as we know that still the majority of people experiencing intimate partner violence don't contact police and often don't contact services. So that sort of idea of safety being something that occurs solely in, in agency context um, really doesn't fly. Mm, absolutely. And I think um, that's really interesting that you brought up about people not contacting organisations because now people are also very wary about the organisations that they contact and whether they too will call the police as first responders. 
Yeah, I think that's such an astute observation. I think it's something that we really are grappling with in this moment and this context. You know, what does it mean if the types of interventions that people can expect themselves might co-sponsor violence or other types of violence, including state violence? So I think that's that's very much the kind of moment for this conversation and a lot of this work that we're here to talk about today has been occurring in that context. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation because um, for listeners, if you haven't already listened to episode two, um, where I spoke with Lung Dang about um, pod mapping, then I definitely recommend for listeners to go back and listen to that. And I think pod mapping is a great tool that can be used to map out your networks um, before entering a crisis situation where either you've um, caused harm to somebody or someone has caused harm to you. And today we're going to be delving into some tools and frameworks, laws that um, you've created that came out of the Beyond Triple Zero workshops. Can you tell us a bit more um, about how these workshops started? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and I think hopefully it should link, I think, with some of the conversations you had about the pod mapping work earlier in that previous episode. Starting from that kind of context that we've flagged a little bit briefly here, one of the things that a number of us in the Transformative Justice Network uh, here in this city were were thinking about doing is is work to build capacity in our communities to respond to violence. So as part of as part of that thinking and conversation, one thing we did was invited uh, Rachel Hertzing, who's a Turtle Island-based transformative justice organizer over here. And she ran something that over there had been called a, a Beyond 911 workshop. And that, through doing that workshop and thinking about the work there, that really dovetailed with some of the work and thinking we'd been doing here, looking at sort of community capacity building to respond to harm. So not assuming that alternatives really readily exist to responses through the, the prison industrial complex or the criminal legal system, but really trying to grapple with some of those threshold questions around uh, what it takes to actually respond to a crisis in a community-based context. And I know that Connie Burke wrote very beautifully about that in The Revolution Starts at Home. I think she asked the question, you know, what would we do if we knew that a crisis was coming in five to ten years? What would we, we do to, to prepare for it? And they're, they're the sort of threshold questions that we're looking at around how do we get out from underneath the kind of emergency of constant crisis responses to actually take up that challenge and to think about what we need to do to be ready. So, so the Beyond Triple Zero workshops here are kind of dovetailed with and adapted from some of that work and really tried to start from that place. So when those workshops happen, um, and they've happened in a whole lot of different contexts, in community contexts, We've gone out and delivered them to services and agencies. We've done them in kind of movement forums and contexts. They really start with some of those context questions. So questions to reflect on how and why pastoral responses are so central in family violence work at the moment. To think about what happens when interventions themselves actually do co-sponsor violence in that way. And it's not, it's not coming from a place of telling people what to think at all, but trying to create a space for critical reflection on this moment in family violence or anti-violence work, and particularly thinking about who this work is for and who it's by, what got us here, what we're actually here to do or called to do, um, and where we want to be. And also to reflect on whether the default interventions that we have in place at the moment are actually achieving what we want them to. Um, and so as part of that, we tend to do things like exercises to unpack 
um, why we default to triple zero responses and in also thinking about how we can respond to the community-based concept, uh, what we're trying to achieve and what the specific characteristics are that, that we're wanting to get out of one of those responses so that later we can think about about these characteristics and how we can find them in other ways. Yeah. And I think probably the other thing to mention, and it relates to a conversation you and I had very briefly yesterday around, um, I think, the idea or the pressure of kind of perfectionism, including in this work. And I think that work to kind of interrogate what happens around police and criminal legal responses is really vital because it also gives us something to measure community interventions against. And we know that we work in a in a context that is, you know, it's increasingly professionalised. It's increasingly a non-profit uh, context, and so that sort of non-profit industrial complex drive for easily marketable victories um, can really lead us to, to sort of evaluate in ways that lose the nuance of this work, or that encourage us to compare. Um, to, to sort of compare and justify any work that occurs outside of agency contexts or in a community setting. And so one thing we've observed is that as that work's increasingly professionalised, often, and, and we're called to justify it, often that means that we find ourselves measuring against these sort of uh, utopian futures where all interventions must be deeply transformative uh, instead of actually measuring against the existing alternatives that, you know, what exists right now and what they actually deliver in the way of, of safety or liberation. Yeah. Um, a lot of thinking <laughs> um, has to be done around perfectionism, that idea of, um, yeah, working towards like the perfect transformative justice uh, model. But it's it's so interesting because, I mean, if you are then to, say, intervene where there is um, intimate partner violence occurring and then you do choose to call the police, then what are the police going to do about that incident? So that's what we have to think about. It's... The alternative of, yeah, calling the police, um, have them potentially serve an intervention order on somebody um, and then that party then potentially being, like, criminalised um, for that action or not calling the police um, and trying to figure out another way to address this harm. Mm, and I think we said something so, so acute right before we started this, this interview as well about... Uh, being wary of that language of alternatives, and I think I feel really wary of it as well because there, I think that thin language as if there are ready and really easy alternatives or if there's one simple answer. And there's been a lot of beautiful writing and commentary coming out during this COVID context about it, hasn't there, around the idea that it's taken you know, hundreds of years to build this particular form of the prison industrial complex and everything that it entails. And so asking people to provide one simple or template alternative as if that already readily exists doesn't allow us to get into the nuance of that work and the rich histories and genealogies of the work. And the reality is that this work is nuanced and complex and we're building those alternatives all the time. So that's very much where I think this work is situated in looking at what are those techniques that we might be able to use to strengthen our own capacity and skills within communities to respond to harm. Oh, I completely agree um, because alongside the prison industrial complex, we have the welfare industrial complex. And so when these incidents of violence happen, we're looking for someone else to call. We're looking for another organisation, another institution, um, because a lot of the time... Yeah, like you said, um, we don't think that we're qualified enough. We're the professionals. Um, but I think it's interesting that 
in, uh, um, you know, cases of domestic or family violence where people will happily call the police um, and the police are people that you don't know. The police aren't people that the people that you're trying to assist know. Um, and really the police response is oriented towards punishment. So they're not going to be doing any um, asset mapping or safety planning with um, the people who have experienced harm. And I think one thing that's missed in that, isn't there, is this wealth of expertise that exists in the lives and experiences and resources of people who experience and live with violence and also then the opportunities um, that exist because the communities, the relationships, the families, the locations that exist around around where violence is occurring are often the most invested in achieving long-term sustainable transformative solutions and, and healing around that violence and often are so well-placed to envisage really creative solutions, creative interventions and responses. And so often that's sort of missed, I think, in, in what you're summarising really neatly about that idea that, that safety is, is the business of, of outside experts agencies that exist elsewhere as opposed to the business of, of communities ourselves. So on that note, uh, talk us through asset mapping. What is it? Um, how does it work? How do we practice it? Cool. Um, so so we're, we're going to talk about a couple of tools I think that we've been using in the Beyond Triple Zero and other workshops. Um, one of them is the asset mapping tool. Asset mapping is a term that I think gets used in a lot of different ways but in this case uh, we're talking about asset mapping, and I should say the workshops focus, asset mapping can be used around different types of violence in harm, and harm, but in this case, the workshops are tended to focus around intimate partner and family violence, because that's been the kind of context and emphasis of the work. But asset mapping is essentially uh, a way of thinking in advance of a crisis and a way of, of having conversations um, and sort of auditing to have a look at what sort of assets or protective factors are present in the situation already and what other things like relationships, people, skills, locations, contexts, anything else, resources, can assist with improving safety, with mitigating risk or with providing support in a time of danger or crisis. So how we've been using this um, this tool through the workshops and more generally is that basically it's distilled down into a, um, a handout that's a couple of pages and we've done that in a way that mirrors a lot of the, the kind of common usage of, of family violence services, especially around safety planning, so that the two can hopefully fit together. Um, but the idea is that it can be applied um, and used by all different groups so that it could be used, um, you know, the idea of communities can be pretty slippery sometimes, right? Um, and so this is one, that, one way of kind of working together in locations or groups, whether it's neighbourhoods, friendship groups or small pods, you know, that, that kind of um, pod mapping work that you did earlier in, in the previous episode. Um, to actually try and identify and draw out some of those resources. So it's also about a way of listening and responding when someone's describing their situation. So if we're talking about family violence or a situation like that, it's a way of, of listening that allows you and supports you to notice their responses, so the responses they're using already, and the assets that they have and that they identify in themselves and around them, and to build outwards from there to consider what other assets might be brought to bear to, to increase safety, but also to kind of, um, with that idea of liberation in mind as well. Um, and so the asset mapping worksheet sort of moves through a bit of a kind of who, what, where, how uh, type flow and when. Sort of in, in 
moves through who, like who might be key people or supports, like family or friends or communities or, or workers, what skills people have. It looks at what. Are there things, objects, items that could be used to enhance safety? That can be things like anything from cars to phones to cash to clothes to extra belongings to other resources. Uh, in the where section, that really hones in on whether there are locations or places where risk is reduced or where safety is improved. So that might include places in the home. It might include other locations, so things including like locations not known to the person who's causing harm or places where people in the community are willing to act in support of the person who's being targeted or where people can be asked to be ready to respond. And then it's got a section on how. So that's the kind of plan itself. So how will these assets or people be activated to assist with safety? Do they already know about the situation? What do they know? How will they know to enact the plan? So considering how people will be communicated with through that sort of use of asset mapping. And also the when. So when are these assets available? When might they be activated? Are they ongoing? Are they time-specific? So it's kind of moving us from um, thinking about what we've got, mapping what sort of resources are are available to us and thinking about how to move from there towards kind of safety planning. Uh, And then it concludes with just a bit of um, an audit of, I guess, what are the gaps? Are there gaps? Are there things that are missing in our own communities or settings or locations? And if so, are there actions that we could take to try and fill those gaps to be better ready to respond to crisis or harm? Fantastic. Um, And when you've been doing these workshops, uh, the Beyond Triple Zero workshops, how have you found people have responded to asset mapping as a tool? Uh, So I think it's something that we've definitely been honing and or that I've been honing as we go along because I think the responses are different in different locations and one of the things we've, we've found so far I think is related to that that idea of, and I think that, that Ocean spoke about it in the previous episode as well, a little bit about ideas around community and, and how challenging it can be to pin down what can be a very, very large concept into something practical that you can apply, that you feel connected to, that you could leverage in a time of, of crisis or harm. So one thing that we found is that it can be really useful to go smaller and to think about smaller networks of relationships, family groups, friendship groups, um, perhaps communities that are kind of bounded by geography. And also to think about mapping assets around specific situations or or types of harm. So it is really useful to canvas very broadly. But I think when we get into the specific situations, that's where it's helped to really draw out particular assets. And also in the workshops, we've tended to do this work after we've spent some time talking about triple zero responses and why they're often centred, especially on safety plans, as the first thing that, that people... Uh, are recommended to do what the first thing that people are expected to do and I think when we've been able to break that down and to figure out exactly what people are are wanting to get from a triple zero response that's often things like 24-hour access or the assumption that a response will be rapid or um, you know it can be things like having a location to go to that's, that's open that's brightly lit all of these different individual characteristics the more specific that we've been able to get with what we want to get out of triple zero responses, so not what we always get or not what people always get, but what's desired from them, the more specific that we um, in groups then been able to be with having a look to see where those particular assets or traits or characteristics 
already exist within our communities or where they can be built or, or leveraged or used in times of crisis uh, to improve safety and to minimise risk. And have you um, found that by doing these workshops that you've kind of been able to discuss with people in the community some really, like, you know, different or creative um, ways in how to stay safe um, and maybe talked about some, like, places or resources where you might not have looked before for safety? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's such a great, it's such a great question because I think that often these conversations, especially if we can try to have them outside of crisis situations, if we can try to have them and, and normalise them and also have them when we've got a little bit more time to get into the nuance and to actually unpack all of the different options, one of the things that comes out of these conversations is a real sense of the level of insight, expertise and kind of ingenuity that exists uh, in communities, in people who are experiencing violence and in those who are working to support those people and so I think often there are all kinds of creative options that come out but there's a whole lot of uh, kind of information sharing and skilling up that happens just as we're able to share those strategies with each other and to kind of talk about you know what's worked in one context or one situation or what creative strategy uh, one one community used or, or one person and one family group have used and to be able to share those to sort of actually train each other up um, rather than a teaming that's You know, the workshops certainly don't assume that that we're coming in and training people and they don't know anything, but actually that those resources and strategies are often there and it's a case of creating an opportunity to share them and to kind of um, brainstorm and and spend some time talking about those options. Mm. Absolutely. And for people who have experienced harm as well, um, I mean, they are the experts in their life and they've already been using tools um, to keep themselves safe. And so that's the point at which... You have to start. Um, and, yeah, could you now speak a little bit more about the safety plan and action chart that you've uh, been involved in creating? Yeah. So in terms of the safety planning template, that is designed to kind of fit with or to follow on from the asset mapping work. But it's a tool that, that I have and that we have adapted from some work, a couple of different tools that are present in the Creative Interventions Toolkit, which is a, a phenomenal free toolkit for community interventions. It's available online if you just Google Creative Interventions. Uh, but what we've done is we've adapted that toolkit and, and we've done that for context. Um, we've adapted it to sort of um, to look at what's taking place in and around family violence organising here in this location and to consider the ways that people typically uh, tend to approach safety planning from a family violence perspective here. And so this staying safe tool or safety planning template is is a more specific tool than asset mapping um, in that it specifically seeks to articulate a plan to respond to an immediate family violence crisis. But what's different about it as compared to some of the other safety planning that the agencies and workers and others do, is that it's prepared to deal with concurrent risk. So it doesn't assume that the only violence or risk that's occurring is the family violence. Uh, So it's focused very much on survivor expertise and understanding from people what's happening in their lives and what sort of risks they're managing at the same time. So if a risk of criminalisation is in there or a history of of kind of state violence, that's something that would also be part of, of the safety plan. So it doesn't default to triple zero in the same way. 
that doesn't mean it precludes people from calling triple zero, but it doesn't assume that risk only comes from family violence and it doesn't assume that police will be a site of safety for everyone or that a response from police is what people want in 100% of cases. Um, so that's one of the kind of core differences. And it, it endeavours to be able to um, work very strongly from from the survivor's expertise and to build out from there in, in making a plan. And it can definitely be used in conjunction with other risk assessment tools. Like in Victoria, most agencies use the MARAM framework. So it can be used in conjunction with that. But it's basically a safety plan and action chart. And what it does is it... it uh, understood to kind of come from a collaborative conversation that you're having with a with a person or people experiencing violence, and it it talks us through unpacking what the safety plans for, so which situation, what sort of time period, and then it's a bit different to a lot of other safety planning tools in that it's got a number of columns. So that's where it relates to different types of risk or different situations that could be happening. So as we said, stuff that might be related to the state, might be related to other situations, might be related to immigration. So it's got those various different those various different columns at the top for risk, danger or harm. There's also a column that looks at who or what is the cause of that risk, danger and harm. So the safety plan can ideally um, respond and be managing those those various different situations of risk at the same time. It's got a column that talks about who is the target of the risk or the danger or harm. In column four, it looks at who is looking out for safety. So that's where we really start being able to kind of draw from the asset mapping work into a safety plan. And then column five is the plan itself. So what safety actions will be taken and under what circumstances. And uh, and that's adapted at the moment just to be able to used in, in to be able to be used in this kind of current location. It's a really flexible tool. It's definitely not prescriptive. It doesn't assume that there's any kind of one size fits all approach to safety. But it's about really trying to scan the situations to look at the responses that somebody's already using to keep themselves safe, and looking then at what else exists in their families, relationships, and communities around them that might be leveraged to be able to help support that safety. And with this asset mapping and safety planning, how long does it really take to do? That's a really good question. I mean, I think we've, because we've tended to use, in the training context, it takes a little bit longer. So it means often we're sort of sitting down and and doing workshops and and spending some time moving between groups and talking about what sort of um, assets exist in different situations. Sometimes we might be doing that with a scenario. Sometimes somebody might bring a scenario and then we work collectively together to look at kind of what assets are already present in it that they're using and accessing and where there might be questions um, and other gaps. And that process, I think, can go anywhere from kind of 30 minutes um, up to a couple of hours. When I've used the tools in situations, I think they're very adaptable, so they can be used uh, in kind of shorter, in sort of shorter situations or in more confined time limits. Um, they're designed so that they don't have to be used together. So the the safety planning or staying safe tool is something I've used and I do use a lot in my work, often following some of those kind of risk um, conversations with people experiencing violence. Uh, and those can be done, I think, in the usual amount of time that it would take to do a safety plan. So sometimes they're happening, as you know, in really constrained ways, especially if someone's in a, in a crisis situation. 
So sometimes there's a lot of time pressure to do those very quickly, but I think what they can do is give a structure to be able to have those conversations in a way that canvases quite widely across options. What are some tips, um, a bit of advice that you can give for listeners who are going to maybe try asset mapping and safety planning, but they might not have done it before? So in the way of advice, I'd say that there's a huge amount of resources out there. There's a whole lot of really brilliant and detailed uh, work around community responses to safety. There are things like the Creative Interventions Toolkit. There's a whole lot of work that has been developed and is being developed locally. So I think there are many opportunities to actually access and learn from those resources and also to jump on a whole lot of the different trainings that are happening here but also internationally to make sure that we're really taking this seriously and skilling ourselves up. I completely agree, Loz. But I also want to say to listeners that there is just no step-by-step guide or program that exists for working outside of the state. And so you're always going to be like coming up against a lot of um, really tricky questions. And yeah, your practice is going to be really difficult. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's such a beautiful kind of conclusion and, and way to leave it right is that we're all we're all in this together we're all learning this together and being able to actually have those conversations really frankly about the challenges and the difficulties in the work and not assuming that because there are challenges it means we're doing it wrong I think is a really important part of it as well well thank you so much Loz for joining me on Liberation Loops thank you so much it's been wonderful to talk to you and that was a conversation that I had with Lauren Caulfield about community responses to intimate partner violence. And definitely head to the 3CR website um, and search for the Acting Up program. Um, And there you can find um, all of the resources that Loz talked about today for both asset mapping and safety planning. And if you have any questions, please email me at cbaque3cr at gmail.com. Tune back in next week to hear a conversation that I have with Anna Carlson about surveillance amidst COVID-19. See you then.